This podcast is dedicated to the Dakota, as well as the Lakota, Meskwaki, and Ho-Chunk peoples. We acknowledge and offer honor to those who care for the land on which our communities are built. Thank you. Welcome to the Students Co-op Memory Journal podcast. In this episode, we will talk with Danny, who lived in the 90s in the co-op and became very enthusiastic about cooperative things, so much so that she tried to create another one, and it's very exciting. Let's hear about it. My name is Danny Lind. I lived at the co-op from, I think, 95 to 98-ish. How did you find out about the co-op? Oh my gosh. I remember it was the late, late summer before my second year in college and I had nowhere to live. I don't know why I procrastinated so long finding a place to live, but I lived in the dorms my first year. Somehow like all my friends had other living arrangements already. And I got it into my head that I wanted to live in a co-op, even though I don't know where I even learned about co-ops. That's very interesting. I think I had a friend's sibling who went to UW-Madison and they have a lot of co-ops there. Yeah. So I think I had heard about it through there. So I was like, I wonder if U of M has any co-ops. And I found one really small one, I remember, and got an interview there and had like a dinner interview. And it was really tiny. It was just like an apartment with four bedrooms and there were just like four people. And so the the three people had me over for dinner in an interview and I remember it was so awkward yeah. and uncomfortable. And I was like, yeah. oh my God, I want to live here. These people don't seem like much fun. And I just remember spending an entire day near campus, like around Dinky Town and stuff, looking at apartments, didn't find anything that I could afford or that seemed nice. And I just was freaking out. I didn't know where I was going to live. And I remember wherever I'd been looking at apartments versus where I was parking on my way back to my car, totally dejected. I walked past the students co-op and I didn't know it even existed. I don't know how I didn't find it if I was <laughs> sort of looking for a co-op, but I hadn't. Yeah. And I walked past it and I saw the bike on the wall and I was like, what's that? And then saw the little sign. And I don't think it was up. I think it was sitting on the porch. It was just like that handwritten plywood sign. And it said, U of M students co-op. I was like, what? I'm going to knock on the door. And I knock on the door. And it's so funny because learning later after living there, nobody answers the door. No one ever answers <laughs> the door, ever. He was so wacky and cool. <laughs> unlike anyone I'd ever met before. And he actually answered the door. And I told him a predicament. And he was like, oh, well, you're in luck. We're voting on new members tomorrow. Interesting. Like, so there was a date up. that they voted on members. That's like a scheduled vote. I don't no. know if it was just like every um, board meeting. Like he was on the board. Okay. And he was like, here, fill out this application and I'll put a good word in for you. And he gave me like a little tour and I just was like, oh my God. I just remember my heart beating. I'm like, I want to live here so bad. This place is amazing. I saw all the bikes everywhere. I don't know. I was kind of desperate and I just really wanted to kind of live with other people, but was afraid I was going to be living in some horrible apartment by myself. But anyway, got a call the next day. I got in. I was so excited. They're like, you're in room. I wish I remember the room number. I think it was room eight on the second floor. Um, Like when you're walking down the hallway towards the front of the house is the last one on the right. So the corner room. Yes. Room eight. 
It was still room eight when I lived there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it was room eight. And I remember going to move in and my roommate had, they assigned me a roommate, you know, and I walked in and she had already moved in and I looked at all her stuff and I was like, Oh my <laughs> God, she's going to be my best friend. And she totally was. She was probably my best friend. She was like, the best lady at my wedding and we actually only lived together for like a quarter because then I went and spent the second quarter that year in Mexico and she moved out to a different living arrangement for some reason but we stayed best friends for the longest time just from that one quarter living together at the co-op that is fantastic wow what an introduction to the house I know it was so cool I loved her so much we had so much fun one of the first days moving in I don't know I was just so enamored with everybody. It was just, cause I was pretty young. I was 18 or something. You know, I was one of the youngest people in the house and there just were so many like upperclassmen and grad students and like some exchange students. And it just was so exciting. I just loved it so much. Thank you for sharing that. So you were into food somehow? I wasn't at, I wasn't at that time at all. It's so funny. Cause I grew up an only child in the suburbs. I, we ate crap. Um, <laughs> like I did not know how to cook at all. I never had an interest in cooking. Didn't really have an interest in food at all. I'd always been a gardener, but I grew flowers at home. When did that start? Was that something your parents got you into? Yeah, I don't know. It was. I was a weird kid. I was obsessed with architecture since I was like eight and gardening. And I read a lot. Those seem actually really related to like building a... A community, oh, <laughs> but <laughs> totally for sure. But yeah, went to the co-op, studied architecture, but it, it like very quickly at the house, I started hanging out in the basement in the kitchen all the time. I remember in particular, there were a couple girls who were like juniors or seniors when I moved in, Holly and Sarah, and I just like idolized them. And so I would go down in the basement and hang out with them. And that was like this very turning point at the co-op because it was when they were getting out of the whole Cisco thing and more into having whole foods. Wow. Um, Thank you for telling me about that time because I, I've always wondered when it went from like Captain Crunch cereal to yeah. the best organic bulk food. I know. I remember right, right when I moved in and I think, I think Holly, I think those girls, Holly and Sarah were pretty instrumental in it. I think they were part of lobbying to change it. So when I first moved in, we had that milk machine that yeah, you guys cow. were talking about. Yeah. Mm. And it very quickly went away. Like, I think they were already in, in the works of getting rid of it. And also very quickly, I think it might've been that first year was when North Country Co-op moved and we got all their old bulk bins. Cause I remember helping to move those bulk bins and setting them up. And by that time we had the, I think it was called Blooming Prairie Whole Foods warehouse that we got stuff from that eventually changed hands a couple times and now are like part of the UNFI conglomerate. The what like now? UNFI. UNFI is like the main like Whole Foods distributor to co-ops where all the food co-ops get their stuff from. Is that possibly called also, or is it related to co-op partners? Co-op partners. No, co-op partners is independent and is mostly produce headquartered in St. Paul and is, co- is a co-op itself. I think UNFI is not a co-op. So UNFI would be the one getting you all those like kind of fancy organic versions of normal grocery items too. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. And UNFI UNFI bought Roots and Fruits, which was Co-op Partners' main competition. 
before and it, it used to be a co-op now it's like minnesota wisconsin produce let's say the house reorganizes as a co-op do you think it could benefit from unfi discounts as if it were a grocery co-op the trouble with unify is they have minimums so like so i don't think, think it'd be like bulk bulk my catering business that i just got rid of um <laughs> i i didn't even bother having a unfi account i had a co-op partner Oh, gosh. I had a co-op partners account um, because they had like a $400 minimum okay. and, they, and they, they delivered to my town in Wisconsin, but UNFI has like a, I don't, I don't know. It's like more like a thousand dollar minimum or something like okay, that. Okay. So thank you for that. However, Oh, Alberts, that's what it's called. This company Alberts bought out roots and fruits and then got bought out by UNFI. But if you, you can have an account with, Alberts and they will deliver for, I think more like a $500 minimum, but they don't have access to all the products that Unify has. It's really dumb. Anyway. But yeah. <laughs> I, I was also the produce manager at our food co-op and broker for 10, 11 years. So okay. that's why I know all the ins and outs of all this stuff. So Viroqua, does it have like a big old co-op culture? Yeah. So it's really cool. The I think one of the reasons why I was attracted to our area of Southwest Wisconsin was because it has kind of a co-op tradition like the Twin Cities do, you know, like not everywhere in the U.S. There's places in the U.S. where there aren't any food co-ops. Yeah, we're trying to play with the idea of establishing co-ops here in Arizona. Um, and oh, we are in Arizona. Yeah, it's it's really hard. I mean, I, I've, really I've, hard. I've heard of things like coming and going real fast because co-op law is almost non-existent here um, but anyway well anyway just like you know the twin cities has so many food co-ops um and our area of southwest wisconsin and I, I have this personal theory about why our little areas have it and i think it, it and that it's there were so many scandinavian settlers mm -hmm. that they were like somehow more in tune to the co-op mentality um but yeah the south the area southwest wisconsin we're in like everything's a like most of the utilities are co-ops mm. a lot of the like gas companies are co-ops and the electric companies are co-ops and the phone our phone is a co-op our internet provider i think is a co-op wow that's intense that's yeah, like, it's like really weird that's like they the 1920s never ended <laughs> co-ops yeah, just kept going totally and they're not they're not like hippie co-ops from the 70s like, like the, the, a lot of the food co-ops are they're like co-ops from the early part of the 20th century yeah. Well, yeah, farmer co-ops, grain co-ops. Yes. Yeah, everything's co-op. Co-op bikes, so co-op soap, co-op t-shirts. I remember totally. finding a bunch of articles like that, trying to find out how the house began. Yeah, because that was part of that whole culture, too. Um, I just think it's really cool. And it just, I, it made me feel like, oh, this is a part of the Midwest where they would accept a housing co-op because they would get the concept and not think it's just a weird hippie thing. Wow, that you is know? so amazing. So what exactly was your life like at the co-op, at the house, mm -hmm. before you moved and all that? Like, let's say you come down into the living room or a common area. What's a common thing you'd see? Um, I have this one housemate who was a really good friend, this fellow named Sean Pratt, um, who was a Chinese major. He was studying Chinese. And so he would be down there practicing Chinese out loud. And he was like a very theatrical guy. So he'd be like having conversations with himself in Chinese. That was always really fun. Um, there'd always be like Ian and his friend Nick would be in the TV room watching TV. Maybe somebody would be doing like an art project in the corner. I remember we were doing a lot of murals when I was there. It's a lot of housemates who were like really into murals. So I'd like 
jump in and help out if they were working on that. Mark would usually be down in the basement working on a bike or sweating on his stationary bike if it was in the middle of winter and too cold, although he still went out even though it was cold. Tune into the three 90s episodes I've already done to learn more about, about Mark. Mark, Mark, was so, Mark was so great. He <laughs> helped me buy my first bike that I still have today that I've done so much biking on um, when he worked at Free Will. And he then took it apart at, at the house in the basement in his little bike shop and made it like totally comfortable and perfect for me. I remember we would trade, I would cut his hair and he would pay me in power bars because he'd get stuff for wholesale at Freewheel. Nice. <laughs> it was really cute. So there was like some fun bartering uh, happening in the house. But for me, mainly it was like we just head straight down in the kitchen. And after we had more of the Whole Foods thing going on and we filled those bulk bins full of stuff, we always had organic produce, stuff in the freezer and everything. I just would kind of like hang out with other people and <laughs> my dogs have officially awoken um and but yeah just any at any time you could go down in the basement and somebody would be down there and you could cook with them remember we had like all the moosewood cookbooks Ooh, yeah. and i just fell in love with it it was so great and it was like i was part of the food plan which i think it was like 30 dollars a month if i recall correctly but then the house chipped in or $60 a month. I think that's, I think yeah. it was, I think you paid, I think you paid 30 on top of your rent, but then the house, the house just was so flush with money back then um, because it had gotten paid off and we yeah. didn't have any major repairs for a while that the bank account just kept going up and up and up. And so we do things like let's super support the food program. And maybe, maybe that is why we got to make the switch to you know, organic and whole foods because we had more of a budget to deal with. But I just remember when I was a food manager, I think my budget was $90 per person. Cause I think my budget would fluctuate between like a thousand and like $1,300 or something a month of what I could spend. Mark mentioned that we'd get those view knackers in the summer, those exchange students, or they weren't exchange students. They weren't students at all. They would just come and we know a lot of them were still students, but they would just come and work for the summer and they would live in the house and they were always ready to party and you know, make food and with all those ingredients for free, we just would practice making bread and practice making anything. I remember having like pizza parties and they'd be like, Hey everyone invite like three friends. I remember at one point making pizzas for 75 people just for Holy fun. Nice. Remember Holly and Sarah and I doing a like Ethiopian, like a multi-course Ethiopian meal and everyone had to sit on the floor. We'd spread blankets out on the living room floor and we all ate on the floor and, weren't allowed any utensils had to eat with injera and <laughs> that's um, yum it was so much fun wow it's a hard question but and i don't want to ask too many of these because i want to keep it uplifting but do you know anyone at the house that kind of came from like maybe a difficult family life and the co-op was maybe for some a sense of belonging or a sense of a safe and healing place at least the people I gravitated towards and hung out with like we all just were really grateful to be there and we just all seemed to kind of make the most of it. Not that it was like always easier fun. I remember some really not fun house meetings. There was one woman who hadn't paid her rent for a long time and we were all worried about having to kick her out. So that was no fun. Um, there was a near eviction. Yeah, but I think she ended up just leaving. I'm not sure. And there was, there was one guy who was like way older than everyone. I mean, he was probably 
in his 40s, honestly. But when I was that young, that seemed really old. But maybe he was in his 50s. I don't know. He'd been there forever and he wouldn't leave. And he just wanted to stay because of his cheap rent. I'm pretty sure. Interesting. Yeah. I kind of want to find out who that was because maybe no, Mark, that... Mark would know. Maybe that'll get us back into a little bit of the 80s and 70s. That's what I'd like to learn more about too. I don't think I ever even had a discussion with guy. He had no interaction with anyone. I think he had like a microwave in his room or something. I never saw him in the kitchen or hanging out anywhere, but in his room. I don't know what. That does bring up that issue that Ted said, which is it's important to keep it for students or at least keep it balanced so that that kind of thing doesn't happen where it's just someone totally. who doesn't really want to participate. You know, and I, I lived there for a year after I graduated and Mark lived there for a bunch after he graduated. So I don't want to say like no one should live there who wasn't students, but kind of no one should live there who weren't students a little bit. I mean, if it's called students co-op, it probably should be mostly for students. I don't know. If you could talk about generation differences with your uh, parents or grandparents, how do you think you might characterize those? with the generation of uh, co-opers that lived in the house. What do you mean my parents or grandparents? Like, um, like I kind of want to keep track of cultural changes that happen in the house. And sometimes it's hard to do that when um, the next cohort doesn't even really talk to the previous cohort. So if you have a sense of anything that kind of tells us about um, social differences, like different attitudes towards social um, mm-hmm. issues or civil rights or things like right. that. You know, it's so it's so hard to like think about today versus the '90s because we were in it, you know. So it wasn't like being super critical about it at the time. But I don't remember there being a whole lot of racial issues. However, there was not a very much racial diversity in the house people who were visiting from other countries to be students was where a lot of the racial diversity came from. There was like a couple of people of Asian ancestry. I don't think there was a single black student in the house that I can recall. What was happening in the news and discussions around the university? If you can recall back to the mid nineties, did that ever enter into the house or was the house like a bubble that kind of was like, well, there's the outside world in the university and now there's our, you know, yeah. like club. It, it felt fairly bubbly. I think for us, a lot of what we dealt with was like some homelessness. Like we definitely had some sort of like regular guest of some folks, which in the nineties we called homeless folks who were our friends who were kind of welcome limited, um, who'd come in and share a meal or whatever. Some cooperatives were not comfortable with that at all. And others were, you know, honestly, the biggest contentiousness we had was often with our one frat neighbors. Oh, I've heard about the, the frats had been not on good terms with the yeah. house. Yeah, we had one super nice neighbor, the ones on the corner. They were total sweethearts. We always got along with them. They would invite us to parties and vice versa. The ones on the other side were horrible, horrible. I remember the the year that we had the garden in the front lawn, they like somehow got a car in the garden and were driving shitties around in the garden, destroyed the garden. We, we don't even, I remember Mark was talking about this and I thought we figured out that there's no way they could have gotten through the alleyway. 
I thought we settled on the fact that they like literally picked the car up and plopped it into the yard from the front. Just to do donuts and and destroy the garden. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, they would rip, they would rip my sunflowers out and like throw it in the yard. I mean, that was annoying or whatever, but it was like pranks, whatever. But our main contention with them though was that I remember we somehow got some really disturbing photos. I hope my memory is right, but we found a photo taped to one of the doors in like the second floor, as I recall, of a naked girl who had a bunch of male hands with sharpie markers writing on her and she had like a pillow over her head what yeah there was like whatever frat symbol that those bad neighbors were do you think they were trying to intimidate the house because it was co-ed and they were trying to make we don't know what the hell it was we brought it to campus police and campus police investigated it and they couldn't prove anything we, or they didn't want to. But yeah, that's totally. horrible. This is just it was scary. Disgusting. It was weird. really not cool. But yeah, they were they were so mean and rude to us. And I remember remember after they drove the car where I went over and tried to talk to them about it and they were very insulting. And yeah. But anyway, that is not at all the question you asked. But I'm just no, trying to but that, that that's related. And it just race wasn't something that super that came up much. You know, I don't think it was ever the case where anyone in the house would ever ex anyone i think it was just certain types of people were attracted to or comfortable with the idea of this house and so that's the people we got you know Mm -hmm. i don't think we ever would have been excluding i don't but yeah yeah i'm I'm not sure well i think that's also part of the main cooperative principles is everyone is treated equally like that's totally that's that's a huge egalitarian value so did people use, you mentioned parties. Did people try to hold events at the co-op? Like, Oh yeah. We had so many, we had so many fun parties. We had such fun parties. We had really, really fun parties. I told you about the old dinner parties. We had a supper club for a while. That was so much fun. And I feel like, yeah, all that stuff is like what led me to a career in cooking pretty much so much funner than doing my homework. We also did a drinking club for a while drinking club yeah, interesting we had a, we had a drinking club for a while we made the mistake of having it on sunday nights <laughs> because that was back i don't know if you still can't buy liquor in minnesota on sundays i think there were some liquor shops that closed i recall that too but back then um, it, you couldn't sell liquor on sundays in minnesota so uh we would oftentimes forget to get it ahead of time and we would have to drive to wisconsin We'd have a little field trip to Hudson to get booze for the drinking club. But yeah, the drinking club was really fun. A bunch of us would pile in a car and drive to Hudson to get liquor that we would wait till we got back to the house to do anything with, of course. I was kind of going to ask about parking. That seems really boring now. Oh yeah, it was dumb. I'm, I had a car for a hot second at the co-op and got rid of it after that. It was not worth it. I mean, I biked and bust everywhere anyway it was such a pain in the ass to get my car out that i never took it out i always left it there i only used it when i was the food manager and i needed to go pick up all the groceries for the house i remember that too yeah i think i couldn't be food manager if i wanted to because kind of one of the unwritten prerequisites was having a car so you could not (laughs) yeah well and and i think i only needed the car like once a month because that's when we would go get the big blooming prairie order because it was just like a little two-door car and i would fill it full of stuff tie the trunk 
open. But I remember because we went and got once a week, we would get stuff from I must have had to drive more. I remember sometimes doing the run to North Country because we would get we'd once. A, I think once a month we got Blooming Prairie and then once a week or maybe twice a week we'd go to North Country and had like a had like call in special orders and they would give us huge discounts. They loved us. We would get like a couple gallons of milk because I had a milk crate on the back of my bike. And I remember I'd bike over to the West Bank and put the two gallons of milk in my milk crate and then fill some other groceries we were getting from there and then have like a big backpack with everything else but then we also would get cases of produce from them too so i must have driven sometimes but I that's do remember. Epic. that sounds like what i'd be doing there was a big bike trailer that had been yeah. left nice i wonder if brian hall the fellow that mark was talking about might have left it because he yep. he was so much fun he would bike everywhere with that bike trailer and he had this amazing girlfriend and she was from the United Arab Emirates and she was so cool. And I can't remember if she actually lived in the house or if she actually lived somewhere else and just was always over because she was Brian's girlfriend, but she had never ridden a bicycle before and he got her into bicycling and she was, oh, she was so awesome. She was like five feet tall, wear her little helmet. Before she got her own bike, he would set up like a little like throne for her on the bike trailer interesting like, like a little easy chair kind of thing and she would like sit on the chair and the bike and he would like bike her around it was so cute they were the cutest couple he also really liked dumpster diving so he would come home with all sorts of crazy stuff on his bike trailer yeah dumpster diving actually became part of one of the official um i heard you say that that's so awesome because we would do it all the time you know okay that's good to know that that, that yeah we were trying to save food and stuff one summer when i lived at the house i worked at a bakery in the warehouse district they wouldn't sell day-old bread you were supposed to throw it away and i was like not throwing it away so if it was like a reasonable amount i would just pack it all in my backpack and bike it home and sometimes if i had lots of it i'd give it to the nice frats next door that was so great we always had fresh bread that summer like lots of it it was really nice oh we were talking about parties before and i just wanted to tell you about one party we had it was so much fun. I think our friend Sean Pratt, he was also a really amazing drummer. I think it was him who made this connection, but it could have been somebody else. But in my brain, it was him. Made friends with, you know, the Ecuadorian musicians who are always like at farmer's markets and stuff playing with like pan flutes. Ecuadorian. Yeah, playing the pan flutes. Somebody became really good friends with one of those bands and had them come to one of our parties and play. And it was like the funnest thing ever. They were in, we like cleared all the furniture out of the living room and the TV room and just had this huge, funny circular dance party with the Ecuadorian pan flute That is so fun. Another time we rented a hot tub and had a party. That was kind of crazy. Nice. I was going to ask about something like that. Um, yeah, um, yeah, I can see how that could be. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a big, I remember we had a lettuce party once because I grew way too much lettuce in the garden. All we ate was lettuce. I mean, <laughs> every, I mean, with lots of good things on it. But Yeah, of course. One of our housemates, um, Jeff Zeitler, who Mark and Ian talked about a lot. Jeff was a huge part of the house. He was lived there when I moved there. He's the one who owns the Urban Forage Winery in Minneapolis, which I did yeah. not know that was him who started that until listening to the show about with Mark yay, and Ian. I had heard of that place and thought it was so cool. Keeping and I had community no together. Idea. Yes. I had no idea. 
oh, party. Him and him and I and this one other housemate of ours would go on these midnight runs when we were when we were expanding the garden to the U of M campus, and it was awesome. We'd bring like a bucket and a little mini shovel and dig up things that looked a little crowded. And even back then, yeah, I remember going um, with Jeff, who has the winery. He would also, even way back then, I remember one of my, actually one of my first nights at the co-op, um, he came in to like welcome my new um, roommate and I to the house or something and brought some, I don't remember what kind of, some kind of wild crafted wine that he had made. Like he came to welcome us with it. It was so cool. Um, and then I remember going out on, wild crafting missions with him to get um mulberries we'd run down um, oh yes alleyways with sheets and five gallon buckets and you'd lay the sheet under the mulberries and shake them and then pick up the sheet and empty it into the bucket and i remember coming home with like gallons of buckets and you'd always have like a little carboy in the corner of the kitchen bubbling away was there a mulberry bush slash tree because I never know what it is. Is it a bush or a right. tree? It's a bushy tree. Bushy tree. Yeah. Was there a mulberry plant um, in front of the house? Not when I was there. We planted an oak tree when I was there. I think we planted some lilacs. I think your and- oak tree is still there. The one on nice. the, the one. It's like it's in one of the halves across the yep. middle sidewalk. Yep. Yep. <gasps> For some reason, I feel like I remember maybe Jeff and a couple other people planting that oak tree while I was digging up the garden, but I don't remember. I don't remember. Wow. That's so it was cool. definitely right around it was that your time. generation. That, that, yeah, that there's tree that's still there. Yeah. Um, the mulberry is staining the, oh, cool. uh, the stairs. It, it is I really... <laughs> wouldn't be surprised if Jeff didn't plant that because he loved mulberries, but they also tend to just sort of plant themselves. The birds, the birds poop them out. And that's why they're, that's why they're in alleyways and stuff. What was the time like leading up to when you decided to leave the house? Mm. I'm trying to remember. I think I decided to leave the house because I wasn't a student anymore. And it started feeling awkward. Because, um, yeah, I think I lived there a whole year after I graduated. And I had a job in South Minneapolis that I would bike to. And it was really cool. And I just remember not feeling like I fit in as much. I would get home from work and I wouldn't have studying to do. Like I got, I had like a sort of nine to five office job as an intern at a nonprofit. And I remember getting nice clothes for the first time, like not from a thrift store to wear to my nice nonprofit office job. And I just remember coming home and feeling like all of a sudden older than everyone else, even though I was still (laughs) one of the youngest people in the house. Yeah, Um, I understand that. You matured perhaps? I guess. Yeah. It just wasn't the same. Some good friends had moved out and some other friends had moved in who were still students. And I don't know. Um, I had an opportunity to live with a couple girlfriends who were getting an apartment in South Minneapolis, closer to my new job. It was actually my original roommate who asked me to live with her. So I think, I think I just was excited to live with her again. I met so many amazing people at the co-op, just so many amazing people. still go back and visit and even after I moved out of the Twin Cities I would still go back and visit sometimes because some of my friends from high school moved in and then like their siblings would end up going and so we would all like go back to parties or something because like their sibling or like a friend of a friend was still living there and it was just kind of cute to see it snowball that way yeah Anything else you wanted to share about the house? Sure. I think it was just how important it was to me. 
being like a only child from the suburbs, like being in a kind of place where people with different experiences and different age, different ages, um, you know, like a tiny bit of racial diversity, not much, um, but someplace that seemed like a little more a part of the big wide world. All the cool things that were happening within the house was because we were all banding together wow. and like agreeing to do this stuff together. And it just made so much sense to me because like my entire childhood living in suburbs, just like it always felt wrong. I never mm. felt like I belonged in the suburbs. It always seemed stupid to me. Like <laughs> the fact that everyone has garages in the front of their houses and there's no sidewalks anywhere. Everything's so spread out. It's so dumb. <laughs> everyone's in their own little houses and their own little... Well, now I've gone even worse. Now I live on a dirt road with, I can't even see my nearest neighbors. And I like that a lot too. But at the time, it just made so much sense. And just all of us pooling our money. I loved being able to be so thrifty and save. That was the other cool thing about the co-op. It being so affordable, I was able to get out of college without debt from having some scholarships. And well, the university used to be a lot cheaper than it is now but um, yeah but no but still it's still a, it's an amazing I mean, place yeah i could have like a student job that i and work in the summers and that would pay all of my living expenses and it was amazing and because of that i was able to buy a house a couple of years out of college and then sell that house and then use that money to buy the farm i still live on today and i would not have been able to do any of that if i would have had to pay for that 600 a month apartment by myself that i probably would have ended up having to be in Having super low cost of living for three, four years had a just like ripple effect on the rest of my life. I came across this funny phrase, co-ops were referred to in the past as they were calling them yardstick capitalists, because it was all about making sure that everything is a very equal exchange and everything mm. is very minimal. And I, I think that that's kind of fun because it's about reducing the pro once you take away the profit motive yeah things become a lot more reasonable totally how did the Viroqua thing happen i'm so excited to talk to you about this because it's i, I would love to live and i'm trying to make right now with my partner kind of a, a co-op that we don't care if it's like super rural or or mm -hmm. small city or whatever it is but just um something that's about sustainability and respecting yeah. the earth and um, totally doing everything yardstick green capitalism i guess yeah so while i was at the co-op and i was studying architecture because i lived at the co-op and I discovered that whole thing i mean because i was studying sustainable materials and stuff like that but then i discovered the danish co-housing movement and became totally obsessed with it you know take taking everything that was happening at the co-op that made so much sense in my brain like why are more people not living like this oh more people are living like this as adults, you know, as not students. So this is this is like some part of intentional communities. It's specifically the Danish. So there, you know, there were like hippie communes and stuff like that. But back in the, uh, I can't, I think it was like the 80s. I'm not sure. It wasn't that old of a thing yeah. where this group of people in Denmark in particular coined this term called co-housing. And it was this very intentional way of designing. It was very design-based. And the tenants were that you would have a very small personal space. You know, you'd have like a small kitchen and you'd have like small living area. And then there would be group things kind of centered around it. And the whole design thing was like, they, 
keep the cars outside. There's a parking area on the outside oh. and there's paths that lead you in. Oh my there's gosh. Always, I love this. Maybe I they should would move always, to Denmark. Yeah, seriously. They would always design a, like a playground kind of situation somewhere in the middle. And the windows of your little kitchenette in your personal houses would look on that. Oh, it just was so smart. Cause then like kids can be playing. You can be like doing the dishes, just like check them, check out on them. In and your... the car isn't going to run them over because the cars yeah, are on the outside. Yeah, the playground <laughs> is in like the center of it all where it's safe and it's only pedestrian traffic. And, you know, and they would have like a bigger kind of more communal hall where there'd be big kitchen equipment. And that's where like the bigger commercial kitchen equipment would be. And that's where like the laundry facilities would be. And maybe like a wood shop or something like that. Um, all the like shared stuff. So you don't have to have all those things. It reminds me of pictures I've seen online. And maybe these are these Scandinavian or Danish like models, but of kind of like these concrete futuristic looking things with like green draping off them. And mm-hmm. it's almost like, like a reconcepting of an apartment or condo or something like that. And it, it looks like yeah. that, like kind of eco yeah. village style. Yeah, totally. And like, you know, and, and eco villages have, have become a thing too, but I remember at the time, like I just discovered this particular narrow school of thought and studied it a lot. And some of them, most of them were urban, but some of them, some of them were rural. I became obsessed with the idea of having some sort of rural co-housing situation or like a, and then I discovered more like, like the concept of like a land cooperative, just because at the time I was young and poor and didn't, couldn't just like spontaneously make some sort of like big designed architectural thing. So it's like, okay, we have to start small. We have to like have a land co-op first where we own land as a cooperative. And then we can hopefully build those things over time. Did you establish it as a, 501 or a trust or a- I wanted to, but did not at the time have the experience. I, it all kind of tumbled, you know, my, I would talk about these ideas with my co-op, you know, students, co-op housemates and everyone's yeah. like, Oh, that's cute. That sounds fun. You know, but nobody yeah. was like, yes, let's do that. So I, I just thought that was like my wacky idea that I would probably never achieve because I had never lived in the country before but for some reason knew I wanted to. So anyway, so I got this job in South Minneapolis. It was great. Meanwhile, through a friend of a friend, I got reacquainted, started hanging out romantically with this guy in Morris, Minnesota, which is a small town in Western Minnesota. It's a university town. And he was from there and he had dropped out of college to start a coffee shop. And it was a cute, small little town. We dated for like a few months, long distance. And he, but the reason why I was so attracted to him partially was because he independently of me already was obsessed with the idea of having a land co-op, some sort of rural cooperative situation. So I was like, and he was running a coffee shop and I was like obsessed with cooking. still at this point and decided, had decided at that point, I did not want to go back to school for architecture. He had this coffee shop, didn't, was just setting up a kitchen, didn't really have a food program for it yet. He's like, do the food at the coffee shop. Dang. I missed your your cohort by like 15 or 20 years. (laughs) I had been back there. I'd be like, we're doing this. I don't care. I I'll, be, I'll be the fifth wheel. Just let me like participate. Totally. That would have been great. But anyway, so we thought maybe we'd do something like that outside of Morris since he had the connections there, but I ended up being there for two years and we ran this coffee shop and we did the food and it was great. We learned a lot. We made no money at all. We were done. We tried to have it be a vegetarian coffee shop in a like small farming community. I mean, there was Aww. a university there, but People were into it. It was very popular amongst a certain sect of the population who loved it so much. And it was great. And still to this day, it was like one of the coolest coffee shops I've ever 
been to. What was it called? It was called Carl's Coffee. Okay. Yeah. And Jeff, my partner who I was doing that with at the time, he was like so talented at getting major music acts to like come out. Mason Jennings would come play at our coffee shop. Wow. For door. (laughs) For like $5 door. Wow. Um, It was a great coffee shop. But anyway, we decided not to do it there. A, because we were not making any money. And B, because there was like no support for um, organic agriculture. I really, at that point, thought I wanted to farm vegetables. Mm-hmm. At that point, 98% of the land was tilled and there was one organic farm in the entire county. And they all wow. they grew was flax. <laughs> it just didn't seem like a very supportive community. The, the, the newspaper in town would actually publish editorials about how bad organic was. How it was Whoa. like all a hoax and it was bad and everyone was going to starve if we tried to do it. And Good I just, heavens. I don't know. It just, it didn't, it wasn't right. So anyway, I really wanted community to, to organic. Yeah. I wanted to stay in the Midwest somewhere. So did he, we somehow magically found Roqua. I think there was a coffee shop for sale that we found. We were looking for other coffee shops where we could try to, that's what we knew how to do um, that we could try to run it and have a farm somehow. We ended up, because there was a coffee shop for sale in Barocca, going there, checking it out. While we were doing some research on it, we found out there was a bunch of like old, established, intentional communities there already. There were three at the time that we knew about. One of them was an anarchist intentional community. Wow, that sounds like um, I went to one in Virginia called Acorn. And oh, it huh. was, it's, they're, they're, they do that seed saving. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it was one. very, very anarchic. <laughs> it was like, yeah. I've reached anarchia. I am here. <laughs> yeah, this one was too. It was called Dream Time, and it was really cool. And but it was very rundown. They had just about taken over this entire tiny, tiny, tiny little dead town in the middle of nowhere. And they had all these like crumbly buildings, including the old school. And the main residence was, was this teenage boy who I became super good friends with and his dad and a few other people. And it was wild, but we basically stayed there when we went to go look at this coffee shop. And I was like, okay, this is really interesting. This isn't exactly what I'm wanting to are they Are they writing but, editorials to the newspaper about anti-pesticides? And, no, okay. they're really awesome. In fact, in fact um, the fellow, the dad of the guy I was talking about still has a really amazing permaculture operation and sells really cool plants at the farmer's market still. Oh. He's awesome. So they're still around. I don't think there's a whole lot going on there as a community anymore. But then there are a couple other ones down in my neighborhood where I'm at now one of which isn't really alive anymore. And another one who is still super alive and well, and they've been around since I think the seventies. When we first started, we hooked up with them and they would have us come over for their meetings and they were like helping us write our bylaws and stuff like that. So anyway, I fast forwarded. So anyway, we found Baroque with fell mad. I fell madly in love with it. Cause I was like, there's so much support here. Organic Valley is headquartered there, which is like the largest dairy farmer co-op in the country, largest dairy co-op. Vernon County, the county right next to where the farm, our farm is, has like the largest number of organic farms anywhere in the country, I think. I don't know if that's still claim to flame. It was a claim to fame back then. Organic Valley had like a produce 
section of their farmer co-op where you could grow produce. And I was super interested in that rather than starting my own CSA at the time. Um, there was a food, there was a really fun food co-op in Viroqua. There was a fun food co-op in Gaze Mills, the next town over. There was an old food co-op in another town right nearby. There was a food co-op in La Crosse, which is our closest sort of city. There's co-ops in Madison. There just was like food co-ops everywhere. So that, that was one of our requirements is wherever we moved out of a food co-op. Not that um, it sounds like a, like a lot of effort for you to magically stumble on all these things, but thank you for appreciating and gravitating towards those things. I really oh, respect sure. that and appreciate that. Well, and it was just a really neat town there. There's a Waldorf school yeah. that was started in the eighties. It's still, it's one of the only rural Waldorf schools in the world. Like people come from all over the country and sometimes overseas to settle there and be able to have their kids be in our Waldorf school. That only goes um, K through eight and they've started some of those students um, maybe like 22 years ago or something, they started an alternative high school too. That's sort of Waldorf inspired. And that school is totally thriving. It's so awesome. But anyway, so yeah, we found that area, ended up finding a farm and um, we had another friend who um, had just inherited some money. So I had a chunk of money from house I bought for my college savings. My partner at the time had a chunk of money from selling the coffee shop that we had been running. It wasn't like a ton of money, but we all had a little bit of money to pool together to do a down payment on this farm. Cause back then stuff was super cheap. Um, that is so amazing. It's like such an uphill battle right now. I know. I, there's no way we could. Do it <laughs> I don't know how no this way. is going to continue. I know. Yeah. So you, you laid some important groundwork. Yeah. So that was in 2001 that we moved to Rope and bought this farm and then proceeded to Actually, the f- first we bought a wholly, totally different property um, that only had a barn on it. And we were going to um, straw bale in the barn. That was my big master plan. And yes, we all made like little like cubicles in the barn because, you know, it's like very grid. Yeah. So there's like supposed to be, um, but we had to like put um, clear plastic sheeting up above us because there were pigeons who lived oh. in the barn. Oh, yikes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was funny. But um, anyway, we ended up getting rid of that property and getting the one we have now because it actually had a house. <laughs> so so it sounds like you had this co op. We didn't start it as a co-op right away because we just didn't have the resources or the experience to start it as a co-op right away. The intention was always to turn it into a co-op once we got a few more people who could invest in it. Yeah. Um, Because there were only three of us at the time who had any money because we were young. We were in our early 20s. Um, Not very many people in their early 20s have like 10 grand or something they can throw at something. Was credit a discussion back then or did they not really, I mean, loans were just like, there, here you go. It was very easy for us, for the three of us to get a loan because we didn't, neither of the three of us had bad credit. And also my parents were willing to co-sign on it. Wow. Nice. Cause they're saints. That's um, super supportive. Yeah. They're awesome. So that's how we were allowed to do such crazy things. I think our mortgage was like thousand dollars a month or something. Wow. So it, wow. you know, it's not too hard to find enough people <laughs> to like pitch in to come up with a thousand dollars a month. No. You know, we immediately had some friends who thought they were interested in starting this co-op with us. Yeah. We like moved, dropped what they were doing and moved there. Did you think of it as like students co-op too? 
or did it have like a title or what? No, what because concept? at first, at first there weren't any other student squat people there besides me. It was like my new crazy friends. Okay. I, I was definitely taking my experience from living in the students co-op combined with my experience studying these Danish co-housing. Okay, sure to the table. I mean, I was kind of like the bossy bitch of the group. Like we did people, this. did people think that about you? Probably. I don't know. Uh, I, mean, I mean, I think, I think people were like happy that somebody was sort of taking charge. It sounds to me like they, based on what you wrote in an email, you were kind of like, you wanted things to be cooperative and Very that wouldn't move, that wouldn't move things quite as, uh, as quickly, if at all. And so you kind of had to sort of step up yeah, everyone had different experiences with co-ops or none experience with co-ops. And some people like had more of an anarchist sort of bent that are like, oh, if I pay $100 a month in rent, that gives me equal rights to you three who sunk all your savings into it and have your name on the mortgage and have to like cover it if no one else does kind of thing. Wow, um, yeah, that's a lot of, that's, a lot of um, that. Th- I think I've met some anarchists that are even under, would understand that is that's not truly like a, a people oriented. Yeah. No, they also weren't true anarchists. They were like, one right. didn't right. really understand what anarchy actually is. Yeah. But then occasionally some old students co-op um, friends would come in, like um, had a married, married couple friend, Josh and Annabelle. Um, and Josh had been one of my best friends in high school and then moved into the co-op because I'd been living there. Wow. And that's he, so fun. Yeah. And then he met Annabelle, one of my housemates, and they eventually got married wow. and they followed us to Viroqua. They didn't move into the house right away because they were like newly married and they were like, we didn't really have the right kind of facilities for them. Like we were all crammed into a house, yeah, one house. And they moved to Viroqua because they wanted to be a part of the co-op. They just didn't want to live there while we were in like phase one. Like we always thought of it as like a phased thing. We were in like phase one where we were all crammed into. Yeah, yeah a house and a trailer and a ramshackle cabin and sharing stuff. Well, we figured out who was going to be part of the co-op and got our bylaws written Mm. and then could like really get investors. And like, I knew the whole time, I knew this whole time that we were doing it wrong, Mm. that this was not the way to do something like this, but it just all happened that way. When you're trying to create a community, it's people first, right? So as long Mm. as you're expecting people to show up and and be excited. There isn't really a wrong until it goes wrong. You know, like we were moving forward because we were having fun. Yeah. But we were also trying to do the right things and trying to somehow make this happen. But it was sometimes like pulling teeth. And sometimes it was like one step forward, 10 steps backwards. Oh man, yeah. And, you know, and people would move in and move out and we'd have to start the whole process over again. Right, right. It was heartbreaking and heart-wrenching and frustrating, but also at the same time, we were having lots of fun too. But yeah, so anyway, Josh and Annabelle from the co-op, they moved to the area and would come to meetings and stuff. And then after a while, enough space opened up that there was a nice room available and they were like, okay, we're going to move in. And so they moved in they were super serious. And I was so excited because I was like, oh, finally, these two old friends of mine are like know exactly what this whole co-op thing means and are going to have my back and we're going to make shit happen. Yeah. So we tried really hard, but there were other opposing forces in the house that it was like budding heads. We just couldn't do it. Yeah. It was really hard. 
Good for yeah, you. we tried. It was fun and it was exciting to think about it. We had a lot of fun and I wouldn't have been able to still have the farm I have now because there's no way I could have afforded it on my own at the time. How did your life shift and what what are you doing now? As my other housemates, a lot of whom wanted to like move on and move out of the area and do other things. I was like, I'm going anywhere. <laughs> you can't take this place for me. So ended up selling off some land to buy out my two original land partners and worked, got the mortgage down and still had, still had housemates. I was still working on the co-op idea even after they left, but I started thinking there wasn't a whole lot of chance, but I ended up having like less housemates. And then I eventually met my husband, Mike, who was harvest coordinator at a local vegetable farm nearby. Oh, and in the meantime, I had like given up on the idea of vegetable farming because I got a management job at the co-op right away. And I was like, oh, this is really nice. I like work four long days a week (laughs) and have three day weekends and I have paid time off and I have paid holidays and I work in the air conditioning and I get to take home more free vegetables than I know what to do with. I still had a huge garden, but I was like, at that point I had like met enough farmers to know that I didn't actually want to do that. But then I ended up a few years into it meeting Mike who wanted to be a vegetable farmer for sure. And was working towards that. So he ended up eventually moving in and starting a farm with a couple of our neighbors. The two brothers had already started it, but they were like drastically expanding it. It was called Driftless Organics. And Mike was a partner with that for 10 years. Driftless Organics still exists. Mike isn't a part of it anymore, but we still raise grass-fed organic beef cattle on our farm. Wow. Um, we got married on our farm. We raised all the vegetables and the pigs for the wedding on our farm. <laughs> And a bunch of old co-opers came to that. So that was really fun. <laughs> wow. Mark and Kath- I think Mark, Mark and Kathleen were there. And yeah, lots of people were there from the co-op. That was so cool. what do you think of today when you think of the students co-op? You know, when Mark, I think when Mark first emailed me that you were doing this project and to see if I wanted to connect with you, I was like, hell yeah, I totally will connect with that. Just because it was, you know, just such a huge part of my life and, all the people that I met and just the fun I had and just the exposure to the co-op principle and definitely natural foods and scratch cooking has been a huge part of my life. And I learned all of that at the co-op. So wow. it was Thank you. very, very important, pivotal time in my life. I hope it has been for lots of other people too. Me too. Yeah. Thank mm-hmm. you so much. Thank you Thank so you very that. much for um, sitting in on this. Uh, do you, I guess the only other question I've been asking is, do you have any advice for future co-opers? And do you have any questions for any other interviews that I do? Hmm. Obviously I would love to hear anything about food and the kitchen and like how, how all that came to be, how that equipment got down there. Like if people had any sort of like supper clubs in the past and if it is, what did they make? And yeah, fun party stuff. I think too, just like how hard was it to get things, you know, from, from my experience trying to start my own housing co-op, like learning that it's really hard to start. It's really hard to build rules and stuff in when you're living it. It's like easy to 
walk into someplace that already has existing rules and, and know what those rules are and like you can take it or leave it. If you don't like it, don't live here. But like trying to corral a bunch of different people with different ideas into like trying to make rules. Like how did that happen? Like how did they, how did they happen? Cause I, you know, I definitely like saw evolutions of it while I was there. And, you know, it's not like it was super rigid and couldn't change, but like starting everything from scratch. I'm very curious how, how they managed to get those first set of rules going and getting everyone to agree to them. Yeah. There were three professors that funded it. Um, one of them, Herbert Park Beck was only at the university for like, like a semester or a year, like very short time. And in that time was like instantly recognized the co-op and was like, yes, do this residential co-ops all the way. And then he went back to New York and was teaching uh, underprivileged black children so pretty, pretty early, like a kind of a civil rights white guy. Okay. And, and then there was, but the main, the main funder was Midland Cooperatives and particularly a guy named MD Zeddies. So people called him Doc because he was okay. Milton, Milton Daniel MD. So Doc Zeddies helped establish the Students Cooperative Inc. Um, for the Amigo Club. Okay. And then also went to St. Paul and created the independent men's co-op. It hmm. doesn't exist anymore, but may have merged with the, the, the Minnesota students co-op, which is the St. Paul campus five house co-ops. Um, but it's really hard to create like a cohesive culture in that. Right. Um, yeah. But anyway, Mrs. Wishcamper, I think she, she, I think she saw when the frats, having struggles because of world war two moved out for whatever reason also psy upsilon has never been like the most successful frat okay. <laughs> um but i think she saw that first of all it had generous digs for a house mother back porch three rooms personal bathroom you could just go down the stairs and you're in the kitchen like it'd be a pretty cool house mother apartment. that would be a great job for me <laughs> <laughs> yeah and also fewer fewer men to take care of Mm -hmm. 1901 was a huge boarding house. And I think at the time, 1721 University Avenue Southeast as a frat was only like, it, it probably rang, ranged from like 25 to 35 members as opposed to 1901, which looked like it could have been more. So okay. better digs, fewer men to cook for. I think, I think she was like, go get that house now. And I think that's why... Amigo Club only lasted at 1901 for like less than a year and then was in 1721 real quick. Okay. And then they just stayed there ever since huh. for 82 years. That would have been so interesting to know when I lived there. If we didn't know any of this. You're going to interview some people and you're going to learn all sorts yeah. of interesting so, things. Thank you. Thank you again. I, I hope thank you had a good you, time. Maxine. Yeah, it was super fun. It was super fun to listen, listen to... <laughs> to Mark and Ian and reminisce about some things. Okay. Thank you so much. Have a great night. Thank, thank, you. thank you. You too, Maxine. Take care. I hope you had a good time listening to another hour of the Students Co-op Memory Journal podcast. Next time, we'll be talking with some co-opers who lived there in the 1950s and 1960s. They are in their 80s now and they agreed to talk so i'm very excited let's see uh, how many will join us next time uh, take care and be well uh, by the way if you would like 
to check out the show notes of this podcast, you can go to podcast.studentscoop.org.